0: In a joint editorial, the editors of three leading journals have sharply criticized proposed changes to the National Health Service in England. With the overhaul just over a year away, the Health Service Journal, the Nursing Times, and the British Medical Journal have claimed that the changes will be destructive. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN President Ronald Falk speaks with Dr. Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the British Medical Journal.
1: Hello, this is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology, and with me today across the Atlantic is Dr. Fiona Godley, who is editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal. Fiona, welcome.
2: Thank you very much, Ron. I'm delighted to be with you.
1: You and colleagues from other major UK journals wrote an astonishing editorial that speaks to the troubles of the National Health Service reform. For those of us who live in the United States and are similarly in the throes of trying to understand our own health care reform, can you please set the stage for us of exactly what the National Health Service reform process is really about?
2: Yes, Ron. Well, I think it's fair to say that the NHS, since its inception in 1948, has never Really been free of change, as one would expect. It's a major health system covering the whole of the British Isles. This particular reform is specific to England, and it seems to have been intended to put the control for how healthcare is structured and what the money is spent on into the hands of clinicians, meaning mainly doctors, but also nurses and others. And it's something that I think some previous reforms have attempted to do but have really failed, or at least the, the view of the current government is that they had failed. And in order to achieve this, the current government, having promised that they wouldn't do another major structural reorganization, uh, has done exactly that, that they, they've really decided to remove some of the structures completely and invent new ones that are expected to take over the way in which our health care is purchased uh, and delivered.
1: Help me for a minute as a as a typical American who really does not understand the National Health Service very well. The current structure is one in which the decisions at present are made by whom?
2: Well, that's a very good question, Ron. I, I think it's fair to say that what we have in, in the UK is a is a system where most health episodes healthcare episodes happen within primary care. So most people in the UK will have a GP, a general practitioner, a family doctor who will Provide their care, and the budgets that support that care come from what we call primary care trusts, so that's an overarching body which which effectively manages the budgets for a group of family doctor uh, organisations. Now those primary care trusts are also responsible then for referring patients who need to go to hospital into the hospital. So the problem was that the general view was that The primary care trusts were not doing a good enough job and it was still the managers of those trusts as opposed to the clinicians working within them, the the primary care doctors and others, who were making the main decisions about how the money was spent. And and there was a sense of it was inefficient, it wasn't responsive. that The large hospitals were still calling the shots, if you like. So, to some extent, it's partly that old discussion about the difference between managed care, which in the States, I think, has been successful, which um, has a slight reputation for encouraging less care to keep the budgets down, and then fee-for-service, which is what the hospitals might be uh, accused of doing, which is where they uh, get paid for doing more care. And somewhere between that sort of managed care fee-for-service continuum, Uh, one wants to find a situation where you're doing appropriate care at the right budget, the right quality, and all of that. So we're seeking, I suppose, who will be the best people to to ensure that patients get the right care when they need it. And the new structures, which are that these primary care trusts, which have been managing the budget, will be replaced by smaller collections of primary care doctors working together, is really what, what this current reform is aimed to achieve.
1: From an American view, Many of us who are practicing physicians would find that reform almost a breath of fresh air since a lot of our current practice is dictated not by what we as physicians or nurses or other providers think is needed on the ground or in the trenches, but rather by insurance companies and their medical directors or Medicare or Medicaid directors who really have no specific understanding about a specific patient uh, end up dictating the kind of care we can provide. So this reform strikes me just on the surface of it as perhaps putting control in the hands of those who may be most involved in assuring the best care of a specific patient. Is, is that wrong?
2: You're reflecting the uh, sense of surprise and Confusion that some politicians in the UK are, are expressing—that you know they're saying, "Well, we're offering to give the doctors um, much better, much greater control over how healthcare is structured and delivered," and they, they're throwing it back in our faces. And why is that? And I can see that it would cause some confusion. Well, here are two things that worry the primary care doctors who are being asked to take on this new role. One is, do they have the right skill set? So a lot of the lot of the issues are around budgeting and planning and strategizing and those sorts of things. And they don't really necessarily have the right skill set. In addition to that, they don't want to be put in a position where their patient in front of them might think that the clinical decision they're taking is not necessarily in that patient's best interests, but is in the interests of a wider population that that general practitioner has responsibility for. So if the GP says, I'm not going to give you this treatment, is that because the patient shouldn't have it or because the that particular group of GPs can't afford it.
1: It is almost a worry then of an inherent conflict of interest on the part of the primary provider. In other words, that, that the provider would ration care not because of what was needed for their patient but because of whatever their bottom line was.
2: Absolutely. And given the concomitant economic situation in the world and in the UK is, is not escaping that, we know that we've got to save in the UK's health budget $20 billion over the next four years. That's a 4% reduction in real terms in terms of cost. And the GPs, the primary care family doctors, think that they are being landed with a, what, what many are calling a poison chalice, where they will be the ones who will have to take the hit in terms of being able to offer patients less, uh, which is really, you might argue, a political decision. Now, that's not to say that there aren't many doctors in England who say that they welcome this change and they think they can make it work. And they think in particular that it it might be a good lever for improving the quality of care. There are some extremely good doctors in the UK. There are also, as I'm sure in any country, some who are performing less well. And it's always been a problem as to how do you raise those less good doctors up to the level of the best. And managers have tried it. Governments have various incentive schemes to try to do it. And it may be that if you put that uh, decision-making power amongst their peer group, that that might be a way of uh, shining a light on the less illuminated corners of of medical practice in the UK. So there are doctors who who are saying they can't wait for this to happen. But I think going back to the editorial that we wrote, which was a bit of of an unusual thing in a way for, for us and our colleagues to do, it was really to shine a light on the, on the process that is a cause of great concern. That, as I say, the government has said they wouldn't do a top-down restructuring. Everyone's exhausted by the previous one. Uh, and then they've done exactly that. Pretty chaotic. They haven't brought the professions along with them. Patients don't know why these reforms are needed. They're proving to be very costly at a time when we need to save a lot of money. And a much better approach, many people agree, would have been a much more evolutionary iterative approach rather than this big bang.
1: That's really the heart and soul of what the editorial was about. And and what strikes me from just listening to you and reading your editorial is that those physicians and providers who are probably in larger groups and perhaps have MBAs would be uh, eager to have this kind of reform and probably are ready for it. But I can imagine the vast majority of providers would really not be ready for it. And if it happens all at once, as it sounds from the editorial, like it may, that would cause abundant chaos. Is that what you're really worried about?
2: That's, I think, a major worry that nobody quite knows how this will work. Even those who are charged with delivering it at senior level, some of the structures are not by any means agreed, certainly not in place and we're doing this at a time when we are charged with with making really substantial savings across the board. I should say that another big piece of the concern around these reforms is around the role of the market and to Americans this may seem very strange that we would care about private providers, private um, health companies. Delivering healthcare care, at the moment in the UK, we have a sort of mixed economy. We have a lot of public sector hospitals, primary care structures, um, although they are individual um, business people running them as individual, but they contract to the government. The new approach would have a, a greater contribution uh, from the private sector, both in primary care and in hospital care. And there's a new phrase that people are hearing a lot about, which is any qualified provider. So in future, uh, these new commissioning groups set in primary care will be able to buy care, purchase care, if you like, for their patients from from anyone who they think is qualified to provide the care. And there's a a real fear that this will lead us towards a much more insurance-based model, which is one that Americans are familiar with, but one which many people in the UK fear will reduce access for proportion of patients, it will reduce the amount of things that are available to patients, and that there will be a big shift in the very nature of what we see as a very prized national treasure, the, the National Health Service itself.
1: Somewhat interesting that uh, in England, you're heading towards an American model, and recently America is heading towards a more British model, somewhere in between, as the, the best care must lie.
2: Somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, there'll be the perfect
1: <laughs> That's right. There'll be perfect care somewhere in the Atlantic. What was the reaction to this editorial?
2: I think many people welcomed it. The British Medical Journal have to choose our moments for the things that we speak out about in, in a political sense. Uh, we don't want to overdo it. It's not necessarily our role on a lot of health issues, but health is a very political field. And I think, Given the importance of these reforms, we felt that it was important that we did speak out. We had published two previous editorials, one about what we considered to be Lansley, Andrew Lansley, that's our Secretary of State for Health, uh, his sort of experiment with the NHS, and, and we were not very complimentary about what he was trying to do and how he was going about it. There was another editorial which really called for the, for the legislation, the health care bill going through Parliament, given a, a quick and decent burial. But this one I decided we should do with uh, not just the doctors but also the nurses and the managers and try and present a a united voice across the UK's health professions, if you like. We couldn't agree on exactly what we wanted from the bill. I was of the view that it should be scrapped. Uh, The others weren't quite of the same view but had very big criticisms. So we agreed to criticize what we all felt was was a very, very poor and damaging process, badly timed, badly designed, badly implemented. And that was was how we we came up with that view. And it did did cause a stir. People here were very interested to to hear that we had come to that view. One other major worry about the reforms is the impact they might have on the way in which the NHS serves populations. And At the moment, we have a very population-based we have local health authorities, we have contiguous, if you like, primary care provision so that pretty well everyone, well everyone if they want to, can register with a general practitioner and then get their hospital care through that route. Uh, This bill offers the opportunity for these primary care groups that are developing to purchase care from wherever they like, so if they can send a patient to any hospital that gives the best care, which may seem like a good idea and, and, and probably is, but it also offers them eventually the possibility of attracting patients from anywhere in the country. So if I see a very good primary care provider in Oxford and I live in Cambridge, I, I could, you know, in theory, go and register with them. Now again, this may seem like a good thing, patient choice is, is something we hear a lot about. But there is a worry that what it will do is undermine our ability to provide public health and really to, to map out where there is variation in care and, and address inequalities in care and vaccination rates and all the things that matter to helping a healthy population exist. And we do look to America and, and worry about the fact that, that as far as I understand it, America doesn't have that population-based approach. And there are, as we know, many people in America who don't have access to, to health care, uh, they aren't insured, and you know, they fall through various nets, and it makes it very hard to deliver good public health as well as primary care. So that that is a major concern about the current reforms, and nobody yet has been able to reassure, reassure those who I've spoken to that that may not be one outcome.
1: That would be an outcome that would be hugely unfortunate. In the United States, we have enormous uninsured population of poor and the working poor that really strain every aspect of our medical system and unhappily get much of their care through our emergency rooms rather than through any orchestrated system. So if an unintended consequence of this is to not allow efficient care for the poor who may not have the resources to drive from Oxford to Cambridge, that would be a very unhappy, unintended consequence.
2: I I would agree. I I mean, the conspiracy theorists amongst uh, those who are criticizing the bill see this as not an unintended consequence. They see it as an intended long-term strategy to undermine the basis for the NHS, move to a much more private healthcare system, to reduce what's on offer as the core offering for those who who were funded by state medical care, and to develop a health insurance model where people would then pay premiums and um, co-payments and all the things that America has. So so they see this as a natural progression to break up the the geographic contiguous provision of primary care into this much more pick and choose who you want in your HMO and and deliver good care to them, and the rest of the population can go hang. So that's at its most extreme. Others are are reassured by provisions in the bill that the responsibility to provide a care for everyone in your, in your patch will still be there but they're worried that those provisions aren't strong enough.
1: How interesting that on both sides of the Atlantic these kinds of very complicated and at times bitterly debated healthcare reforms are moving in very opposite directions. For the Obama administration is really insisting on universal coverage or essentially universal coverage and moving away from the fee for service. As a matter of fact, much of America is now worried about the development of ACOs for primary care in which there isn't fee for service but actually management of a patient population. And you in England are headed. More towards the American model. I really think that we've already figured out how we need to solve this somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic There's be a lovely <laughs> spot where this could all be resolved so that patient care is actually the utmost of utmost importance while managing cost. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank offices. you. Thank you. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology saying goodbye.
0: This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.